Hello everyone, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I hope y'all are having a great week. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the brutal and tragic solved murder of Savannah Anderson. This is one of those cases that lead you on a wild goose chase throughout the entirety of it. Luckily, Savannah's case is solved. However, it did take several years to get to that point, and it was a cold case for a little bit of time as well. So I thought that this would be a really interesting case to cover today. It's not one that I believe is entirely well known. I certainly had not heard of it up until me discovering it. So I'm really interested to see what you you guys have to say about it. And with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Savannah Anderson was born on December 6th, 1956 in St. Louis County, Minnesota to her parents, Alvin and Maxine. Savannah grew up as an only child and had a very close relationship with both of her parents, more specifically her mother. She grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and when she was 22 years old, she decided that she wanted to move to Irvine, California to start the next chapter of her life. Savannah was an incredibly independent person, and when she set her mind to something, she was always going to do whatever was necessary in order to achieve that. So when she decided she wanted to move to Irvine, she packed up all of her stuff, she got an apartment, she got a job, and she set out to California. She ended up getting a job as a secretary at a company called Commercial Credit, and Savannah thrived at Commercial Credit. Every one of her coworkers loved her. She had a great relationship with everyone. And some things to note about Savannah. First off, she was absolutely stunning. She turned heads everywhere she went. But not only that, her personality was described as magnetic. Savannah was someone that everyone wanted to be around, and she attracted a lot of attention simply just by being herself. She was a bright light. She was a bright energy. But the interesting thing about Savannah is that even though she had all of this attention and everyone was gravitated towards her, she was not the type to really bask in the attention. She didn't like attention very much. She was definitely on the shyer side. She was a lot more private. She wasn't the one that was going around to her co-workers, you know, dishing gossip or letting everyone in on her personal life. She very much kept to herself. But even though she was a very private person, one thing we do know about Savannah is that three months into moving to Irvine is when she met her boyfriend, a guy named Bill Mills. And both Bill and Savannah were head over heels for each other. They were so in love. And for all things considered, this move to Irvine seemed to be a very positive thing for Savannah. She got a job. She had a boyfriend. She was living in the city that she loved. She had an apartment all to herself. She really was doing what she set out to do. So we're going to jump to where this case really begins, which is May 14th of 1979. On this particular evening at around 6 p.m., Savannah's boyfriend, Bill, had gone over to her apartment complex, which was called the Woodbridge Apartments. Savannah had lived in this complex for about six weeks at this time, and when Bill got to the apartments and started knocking on the door, he didn't receive any 
answer. Now, at first, Bill just assumed that maybe Savannah wasn't home yet. She was out running errands. She was still at work. So he wasn't too worried about it and decided to go home back to his apartment and just wait a little longer before heading back over. Now, the main reason that he wanted to wait at his apartment was because he assumed that if Savannah was at her apartment or just gotten there a little later, that she would give him a call from her home phone to his home phone because you have to remember the time frame 1979 the technology was not as progressive as it is today by any means so there were no cell phones so bill was waiting for savannah to get to her apartment that way she could call him at his apartment to let him know that she was there and to come on over now over the next hour hour and 15 minutes bill began to call savannah he was calling her every you know 10 15 minutes just to see if she had gotten home yet however she never picked Picked up the phone. So ultimately, by 7:25 p.m., Bill decided to call 911 and ask them to do a welfare check on Savannah. Now, the second part of this was that Savannah was feeling a little bit under the weather the past couple days, and so Bill started to get worried, thinking that this could be a medical issue if she had, you know, taken a turn for the worst health-wise, if she was feeling really sick and couldn't come to the door. So he expressed his concern on all levels, and police went over to Savannah's apartment to do a welfare check. Now, when police got there, they were met by Bill, but they were also met by another man named Ken Bergenson. Now, this was actually Savannah's boss at the time, and the reason that her boss was there was because Savannah was scheduled to work that day on May 14th. However, she never showed up. Now, all of Savannah's coworkers became very worried. They were calling her phone throughout the day. However, Savannah never answered. And this was very unlike her. She was very timely, very responsible. She was not the type to just not show up to work. She loved her job. So the fact that she didn't show up without any warning was very worrisome. Now, when police got to the apartment, they began knocking on Savannah's door, trying to look through the windows. However, they weren't able to see anything and they also weren't getting any answer. Now, when examining all of the windows, police noticed that there was one window. It was Savannah's bedroom door window that was left unlocked. So because of that, police were able to open the window and climb through it. And that is when they entered a horrifying scene. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When the police officer got into Savannah's bedroom, he immediately saw a woman lying on the bed with blood everywhere. There was blood on the sheets, the pillowcases, her body. She had a towel covering her face. And even though she was badly beaten, police were still able to visually identify the woman as Savannah. When more officers arrived at the scene and started to conduct the investigation, it became clear that there was an obvious struggle between Savannah and her attacker that began in her bedroom. Now, when looking at the crime scene and looking at the way that Savannah's body was placed, it was clear to authorities that she had been staged. Her body was posed in a particular way, and there were multiple things about Savannah's body that stood out to them. The first was the fact that Savannah had towels placed over her face. When authorities saw Savannah, she had no clothes on. However, there were towels placed on top of her face. When they removed the towels, they could tell, like I mentioned, that Savannah had been badly beaten. Her face was bruised. It was swollen. However, with the towels being placed over her face, it gave police the impression that whoever did this to Savannah may be someone that knew her personally. Covering someone's face or body after this vicious of an attack is an indication that whoever did this to Savannah wanted to leave her body covered. It sounds very twisted and like very reverse psychology-esque because it is, but this is a common trend and pattern with killers who have an admiration for their victim, with killers who have an obsession with their victim. They want to protect their victim in a very strange and bizarre way. And in their mind, covering the victim after the death is a way of doing that. Now, the second thing that police noticed was that there was multiple pieces of jewelry placed on Savannah's body. In particular, she was wearing a necklace where the clasp of the necklace was on the front of her neck, not the back. And there also was a watch that was just loosely placed on her wrist. And based off of those two items, police were able to theorize that whoever did this to Savannah more than likely put these jewelry items on after murdering her. And the third thing that police were able to notice was that Savannah's body had appeared to have been washed. There was blood everywhere throughout Savannah's apartment, more specifically in her bedroom. There was blood on the bed and the blood also created drag marks from Savannah's bed to her bathroom. Once they got into her bathroom, police were able to notice that there was dried blood in the bathtub as well as on the sink. This dried blood as well as the drag marks and the fact that Savannah's body had appeared to not have any blood on her. The only thing that there was were the cuts and the bruises from her attack, but her body was not covered in blood the way it should have been based on the brutality of this attack and based on how much blood was literally everywhere else throughout the apartment. So when police saw this, again, they were able to theorize that whoever did this to Savannah had washed her body afterwards. So now police have someone who washed Savannah's body, who had allegedly placed jewelry on her after murdering her, and someone who had covered her face after 
the attack. And again, all three of those are signs of someone who had an admiration or obsession towards Savannah, someone who had cared about her in a very sick and twisted way, and someone who wanted to stage her body as being clean and presentable even after this vicious of an attack. Now, we are working with a 1979 time frame, so there is no DNA testing at the time. They cannot collect DNA evidence. The only thing that they can collect is physical evidence, but that does include fingerprints and palm prints, and luckily, the police found both fingerprints and palm prints inside of Savannah's apartment. There was a bloody palm print on the wall and there were bloody fingerprints inside of the lid of the toilet seat. So police were able to retrieve both of those luckily and use them for future testing. Now, Savannah definitely put up a fight towards her attacker. She had defensive wounds all over her body, her arms, her hands, and even her own nail marks were found in her neck, indicating that she was trying to pull off whatever had been suffocating her around her neck. Now, when looking at Savannah's apartment, police saw that there were no signs of forced entry, again, indicating to them that it's possible that Savannah had let in her attacker which only led police more to believe that this was someone that she knew. Now, the coroner was able to conclude that Savannah's time of death was around 2 a.m. on the 14th of May, 1979, and the cause of death was manual strangulation. And the manual strangulation matches up with the nail marks that were found in her neck, the fact that Savannah was trying to rip off what was suffocating her. Savannah had also been struck on the head with a blunt object multiple times. She had a broken jaw, broken fingers, and cracked teeth. And the coroner was also able to see that there were signs of sexual assault. So this attack was so incredibly brutal and horrific from the start to finish. So in order to begin the investigation, I think it will be no surprise when I tell you that police brought Bill, Savannah's boyfriend, in for questioning. Obviously, he is the boyfriend, the significant other, and the fact that he was the one who called 911, it made police question if he was trying to pull a fast one on them. Police couldn't rule out the possibility that Bill had been the one to attack Savannah and then also call 911 to kind of get the spotlight off of him. So so they decided to bring him in for questioning. And when they did that, Bill had told police that him and Savannah had been dating for about six months at that point. They had previously met at Savannah's old apartment complex. Like I said, she had only been at Woodbridge for about six weeks. Now, Bill told investigators that the last time that he saw Savannah was on May 13th, so the night prior. Bill claimed that he went over to Savannah's apartment and the two of them spent the whole day together. They had a great day and that he left at around 10 p.m. that evening to go back to his house. He said that the two of them made plans for the following day around 6 p.m., which was the time that both of them got off of work, which is why he went back over to the apartment around that time to see her. 
Now, we talk a lot on this podcast about how grief comes in many different forms and how it's very easy to judge someone when they're sitting in an interrogation room after their spouse or loved one has just been viciously murdered. And a lot of times it's very quick to judge someone based off of the emotions or lack thereof that they're presenting during those times. And for this case in particular, there was really no question to police that Bill was genuinely shocked, horrified, and just looked like the ground had been ripped out from underneath him. He seemed genuinely distraught that Savannah was gone. And Bill was very cooperative with police from the start to finish. However, one thing that he did refuse to do is take a polygraph test. During the questioning, Bill did ask for an attorney and the attorney advised him not to take a polygraph test, which we've seen countless times before. Polygraphs are not admissible in a court of law, as we know. So it's really no surprise that he didn't end up taking it. Also, this was 1979. We did not know the inaccuracy of polygraphs at that point as much as or at least as much as we do today. And so Bill refused to take that polygraph test, but he did let police scan his body to look for any cuts or marks because like I said, Savannah had a lot of defensive wounds. She definitely put up a fight, but Bill did not seem to have any noticeable markings on him. Now, Bill also allowed police to take his fingerprints and his palm prints to see if they would be a match to the ones found in the apartment. Now, unfortunately, for police, those results take some time to get, especially at that time frame, 1979. So those results weren't going to come back for several weeks. So police had to let Bill go. Now, the next person that police shifted their attention towards was Savannah's boss, Ken Bergenson. Now, Ken had told police that he had originally met Savannah in Salt Lake City. So it was not the first time he had met her when she moved to Irvine and started working at Commercial Credit. It's not entirely clear how they met or knew each other, but it is assumed that they had been friends for quite some time, and it definitely was a family friend type of relationship. Ken said that he always viewed Savannah more as a daughter and thought of himself as a father figure towards her. That's the kind of relationship that they had. And Ken even helped Savannah move into her first apartment when she got to Irvine. They had been out to drinks together. They had gone out to dinners together. So they definitely had a close relationship, but it never surpassed, according to Ken, he said it never surpassed anything other than platonic. Ken was married. And when police asked him where he was the night of the murder, He said that he was at home with his wife and his wife was able to cooperate that story. So similarly to Bill, they took Ken's fingerprints and his palm prints and sent him on his way. After speaking to both Bill and Ken, police decided the next thing to do would be to stake out Savannah's apartment complex. They wanted to talk to some of the residents at the complex to see if anyone else had heard anything. However, no one reported having any knowledge of seeing or hearing anything suspicious that could possibly help police in the investigation. Now, something that police did learn was that there were two security guards that worked at the complex. Now, something that police did learn about the Woodbridge apartments were that there was 24-hour security at this complex. And during the time of the late 
hours of May 13th and the early hours of May 14th, there were two different security officers on the complex that police wanted to speak to to see if they noticed anything out of the ordinary. The first guard police spoke to had the 12.30 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. shift. Now, that was a man named Chuck Doyle. So police bring Chuck in for questioning, and when they start talking to him, they ask if he's ever met Savannah before, if he ever knew of Savannah, and Chuck did say that he had one encounter with Savannah prior, and that was when she locked herself out of her apartment, so he helped her get into it through a window. So he basically told this to police, saying that if you find any of my fingerprints in there, it's because I helped her with this about a month prior. Now, obviously, when Chuck told police this, the red flags for them started flying everywhere because they didn't know if he was intentionally placing himself at the crime scene, trying to deflect if he was the person who attacked Savannah. So because of this, police started digging a little bit deeper into his story. They wanted to know the timeline of what it looked like when Chuck got to work, what his shift looked like. They really wanted a detailed, precise timeline of what that shift was because again, the medical examiner placed Savannah's time of death at around approximately 2 a.m. on the 14th. So that was during the time that Chuck was working as the security guard. So Chuck begins going through his timeline. He said that he had gotten to work a little bit after midnight that night. Again, his shift started at 12.30, but he was supposed to get there at 12. So he got there at around 12.10, 12.15, and he was taking over the shift from the guard who was there the previous six hours, a guy named Bob Sellers. So you had Bob Sellers who was working the previous shift, and then Chuck Doyle who was coming in to work the 12.30 to 6.30. Chuck said that during the time that he was waiting for his shift to start, he was just sitting in his car in the parking lot, and that is when Bob Sellers, the other security guard, got into Chuck's car. This wasn't anything abnormal because they needed to go over the daily report anyways, and that is exactly what they did. Bob got into the car, basically gave Chuck the rundown of the daily report, and then at around 12.45, Bob got out of the car, into his own car, and drove off. Now, this is where things get a little tricky. After driving around for several minutes, just checking out the complex, doing his initial lap, Chuck had parked the car and taken a little nap. He dozed off in the car, and he said when he woke up, it was somewhere around 1.15, 1.30 a.m., and he said he was woken up by the sound of a car door being shut right next to him. And when he opened his eyes, he saw Bob Sellers sitting in the car with him again. Now, mind you, Bob was not on the clock. He was off of his shift. He had been off work for about an hour, a little over an hour at this point. So it really didn't make sense to Chuck why Bob was all of a sudden back at the complex. But before Chuck could even question Bob about why he came back, Bob asked Chuck if the two of them wanted to go to a diner about 10 minutes down the road and get some breakfast. 
Now, this was obviously not something that they were supposed to do. They were not supposed to ever leave the complex premises while they were on the clock. However, Chuck decided, why not? It was a slow night. Nothing was really happening, so he thought. So that is when the two of them drove to the diner about 10 minutes down the road. They had their breakfast together before returning back at 2.30. And Chuck said that once they came back from the diner, Bob got into his car, drove off, and Chuck stayed there until 6.30, finishing out the rest of his shift. Now, this just all sounded very weird to authorities, as I'm sure it probably sounded very strange to you. Why did Bob come back? Why is he weirdly asking Chuck to go to this diner at 2.30 in the morning? There were just a lot of questions. So police, obviously, at this point, they were like, we need to talk to Bob. And to give you a little bit of a background about Bob, Bob was a Marine. He enlisted when he was 17 years old. Years old, and he was also working as a security guard at the complex. When Bob was brought in by police, he told them that his shift was from 4 p.m. to 12 30, and Chuck took over from there. Now, what Bob did tell authorities was that at approximately 10 p.m., Bob had seen Savannah talking on the phone through her apartment window. The way he explained it was that he was driving around the complex, Savannah's blinds were open, and she was standing right by the window talking on the phone. So that is how he was able to relay that information to police. And the math did work out a little bit there because police were able to talk to Savannah's mom and she told them that the last time she spoke to her daughter was at around a little after 10 p.m. the night prior on the 13th. So it's safe to assume that that is the person that Savannah was on the phone with when Bob saw her through the window. Bob said that he waited for Chuck to show up to take over the shift that night. He said that while Chuck was supposed to get there at 12, he didn't end up arriving until 12.15, 12.30, and Bob left shortly after 12.30 after giving Chuck the daily report. Now, like I mentioned, Bob was in the Navy, so he had to be at the Marine base at 6.30 a.m. that morning. But according to Bob, he said that when he left the Woodbridge apartments that day. He left, went home, took a shower, and really wasn't able to sleep. And not only that, he said that it didn't really make a lot of sense in his mind to be going back to bed when he had to get up in a couple hours anyway to be back at the Marine base at 6.30. Now you're probably thinking what I was thinking, which was that's still a couple hours of sleep that he could have gotten. But according to Bob, he couldn't justify it in his mind. So that is when he decided to go back to Woodbridge and ask Chuck to go to the diner with him. So basically, the story that Bob told was very consistent with the story that Chuck told. They had two very consistent stories. However, there was one thing that was very off, and that was the timeline. According to Bob, he told police that he didn't get back to the complex until around 3 a.m., but as I mentioned earlier, Chuck placed Bob back at the complex at 1.30. So that's a little bit too stretched out of a timeline for it to just be a simple confusion, and that is exactly what police thought. They thought that one of them 
had to be lying. One of them had to be miss one of them had to be messing up the times. It couldn't be both in this situation. So they decided that they didn't know whose story to believe as far as timing went. So their best bet was to bring both Chuck and Bob into the station at the same time, put them in the same room and have them recount the night again to see who would slip up when it came to the timing. And at this point, police weren't even really pointing the fingers at either of them either. They just wanted a general understanding of what was happening and to kind of understand the timeline of the night better. Because again, timing is everything. So police wanted to know if this attack happened while they were at the diner, if it happened while Chuck was at the complex, if it happened while Bob and Chuck were both at the complex. They were really just trying to get a better understanding. So they brought both Bob and Chuck back in and they confront them about the discrepancies in the timeline. And when they did that, Chuck was the one who started to backpedal a little bit. And he told police that he didn't have a very precise idea of the time because he had nodded off and taken a nap. So he said it's very possible that he was just confusing the times. He didn't have the time super correct or super precise. So maybe it was 3 a.m. He said that he really wasn't sure. He said he thought it was 1.30, but maybe it was 3. I took a nap. I don't know. So because Chuck began backpedaling, police started to become more inclined to believe Bob's timeline, thinking that Bob didn't arrive at the complex until around 3 a.m. And based off of the medical examiner's timeline, that would mean that more than likely, Bob was not at the complex during the time that Savannah was presumed to be murdered. Now, in this conversation that police were having with both Chuck and Bob, Bob had told authorities that the waitress that they had at this diner was named Gail. That was a very precise detail that he gave authorities, and Chuck was actually not in the room during the time that that information was given to them, so it's not like Chuck overheard it and could have corrected him if it was wrong, but police did want to reach out to the restaurant and to the waitress specifically to see what time both of the men were there. And when they did that, police learned that there was actually not a waitress at this diner named Gail. So unfortunately, there was no one who worked at the restaurant that was able to confirm what time the men were there. So I mentioned earlier that police had taken Bill and Ken's fingerprints and palm prints to test them to see if they were a match to the ones that were found in Savannah's apartment. Now police also took Chuck and Bob's fingerprints and handprints, and in total it took two months after the murder to get the results back to see if any of those men were a match to the prints found in the apartment. And when police got those results back, it showed that none of those men matched the prints in the apartment. Now, as you can imagine, this was extremely discouraging to authorities as they thought for sure that one of these men had to be responsible, whether that was Bill, Ken, or one of the security guards, because if it wasn't one of them, it really just started police from square one again, and they had no idea where to turn at this point. Now, this is when a new theory came into the picture that honestly just brought in more questions than answers. At the time of Savannah's death, there was a serial killer on the loose, and the serial killer was nicknamed the Bedroom Basher. 
The bedroom basher was accused of five deaths in the Orange County area prior to Savannah's murder, and all of the victims were females who lived alone between the ages of 17 and 35 years old, and they were all killed by strangulation after bludgeoning. And when you look at that MO and compare it to Savannah's murder, it pretty much is a textbook copy and paste. The things that were different though about Savannah's case were the covering of the face, the jewelry, as well as her body being washed. Those were the inconsistencies when comparing Savannah's murder to the other five victims. None of the other victims were treated in that way after they had been murdered. So police weren't too convinced that Savannah's death was a result of the bedroom basher. And after the four people that they assumed to possibly have something to do with this, all of those prints came back negative. They really couldn't leave any stone left unturned. Now, two months turned into six months, which turned into a year, which then turned into two years, and then three years, four years, and five years after Savannah had been murdered, this case still had not been solved. And like I mentioned in the very beginning, this case ultimately went cold. And it wasn't until five years later when there was actually a new detective who came into the station and he decided to take a look at Savannah's case again. And based off of the inconsistencies that I just mentioned in regards to the bedroom basher and Savannah's murder, he concluded very quickly that he did not believe that Savannah was a victim of the bedroom basher. So that is when he went back even further and started looking at the initial questioning and interrogation of Bill, Ken, and the security guards, Chuck and Bob. This new detective had come up with a theory in regards to the thought process behind Savannah's murder. The detective stated that he didn't believe that whoever did this to Savannah even wanted to murder her. They never wanted it to get to that point. However, they had a growing obsession with her and wanted to be with her so desperately that they knew that the only way that they could be with her was to murder her, which is why it explains the washing of the body, the putting the jewelry on, the covering the face. They still want her to be her. They didn't want to murder her. That was this theory that this new detective had come up with. And when sitting down and talking to the original detectives who were on the case, they began comparing notes. And this new detective was able to convince the original detectives that they needed to sit down again with these security guards. And strictly for the reason of he wanted to see if there was anything else that happened that night that these guards are forgetting or just not saying if they saw something and didn't say it. So they started with Chuck again. And when Chuck was asked about the night of the crime, he again told the same story, got to work a little bit late. And when he initially got there, he couldn't find Bob. He didn't know where Bob was. So he was waiting around a little bit in the car. And ultimately, that's when Bob got into the car with Chuck to go over the day with him. Now, something that Chuck said in this second interview five years later that he left out in the original one is that when Bob got into the car with him that night, he was not wearing his uniform shirt. All of the security guards at the complex were supposed to be wearing this uniformed shirt to show that they were the security. Now, when Bob got into Chuck's car, Bob was not wearing the shirt. He was wearing an undershirt and he had the uniform shirt in his hand kind of balled up. 
Now, when Chuck saw this, he thought it was strange, but Bob was off the clock. It wasn't something that was a pressing concern. And Bob and Chuck really weren't that close. That was something that Chuck really emphasized in this interview was that him and Bob were not like close friends. They didn't hang out like this. They didn't have a close relationship. And so Chuck really, you know, didn't care enough to ask why Bob wasn't wearing his shirt. And when Chuck was emphasizing that the two of them weren't very close, it brought up the second question that police had, which was, was going to breakfast, going to this diner, something that you guys did regularly. And Chuck told police that that was never something that they had done before. This was the first time ever. And police started to wonder if it really was a coincidence that Bob had suggested to go to this diner for the first time, and it just so happened to be the same night that Savannah was murdered. Now, something else that Chuck informed police about was that even though him and Bob were not very close, Bob had expressed interest to him in the past about Savannah. According to Chuck, Bob claimed that he thought Savannah was really attractive and he wanted to go and get drinks with Savannah at a certain point, but knew that she had a boyfriend, but really didn't care. He just thought that she was really pretty and wanted to ask her out. But again, Chuck told police that him and Bob weren't really friends. So this wasn't a constant conversation. It was kind of something that he said in passing and Chuck really didn't entertain it because he didn't really care. Now you would think that those details about Bob finding Savannah attractive or the t-shirt or never being asked out to, to, to the diner before, you would think that those would be details that Chuck would mention in the very beginning investigation, but Chuck never mentioned any of this before. So now to have all of this new information, police decided that even though both Chuck and Bob were exonerated at this point because the prints didn't match, they wanted to run the prints again. And this time they wanted to send the prints to the FBI headquarters. And luckily, this time, it did not take weeks to get the results back. It just took 24 hours to make a positive identification with these new testings. And when police got the results back, they saw that there was a positive identification in the prints to Bob Sellers. There were a total of 24 points of positive identification made to Bob Sellers with these new testings. And the reason that this didn't show up before, the reason that the tests didn't link the DNA to Bob before was because that the blood found on the scene in the print was actually so heavy that it almost altered the print a little bit and the technology wasn't advanced enough to detect that. And so that was the reason that the results initially came back as a negative because there was so much blood in that print that it almost altered the way that the print was shaped. Now at this point, now having a positive match on these prints, they knew that they needed to arrest Bob right then and there. So they drove to his mobile home in La Brea, which is in California, and arrested him and brought him down to the police station. And at the time of his arrest, Bob was actually married. He had a family. He had moved on with his life. And when Bob first sat down with police, he initially denied any involvement. However, things started to unravel a little bit when police started piecing together his lies and started to confront him about the discrepancies and what he was saying. And when his back was against the wall, this is when Bob finally confessed 
and came clean to the murder of Savannah Anderson. Now, on the night of the murder, Bob said that while Savannah was on the phone with her mom, he snuck into her apartment through her bedroom window and waited for her to get off the phone. And according to Bob, he said that his thought process was if he could get into Savannah's apartment and have a conversation with her, that he could convince her to be with him romantically. When Savannah got off of the phone and walked into her bedroom, she saw Bob and immediately panicked. She started yelling and freaking out, and that is when Bob said he panicked because he claimed that he didn't plan for that to happen. He didn't plan for Savannah to freak out. He thought that he would be able to convince her to be with him. When Bob realized that things were not going in the way that he originally anticipated, he said that he knew that he needed to do something to keep Savannah quiet. Once Savannah tried to run out of the room, he began striking her with his security baton and ultimately strangled her. He said that after he strangled Savannah, he then got out of the apartment through the bedroom window and met Chuck in his car in his undershirt because he didn't want Chuck to see the blood on his uniform shirt. So he had his uniform shirt rolled up in a ball and was holding it in his hand. And after he spoke with Chuck, he then got in his car and drove home. He said when he got home, he took a shower and changed clothes before going back to the complex. Bob said that when he got into the complex, he entered back into Savannah's apartment, this time with the purpose of raping her. Bob told police that he wanted Savannah to be clean at the time of the assault, which is why he drug her into the bathroom and washed her off before placing her back on the bed. He said that at around 3 a.m. is when he finally left Savannah's apartment, and while he was walking to his car is when he saw Chuck, not realizing that Chuck was asleep. He said that when he saw Chuck, he panicked and knew that he needed to come up with the story quickly, which is why he jumped into Chuck's car and asked him to go to the diner. Basically, it was a spur of the moment thing, and he was trying to spontaneously make up a story because he was worried that Chuck would see him. On March 29th, 1984, Bob Sellers was charged with murder, rape, attempted rape, and burglary. On November 4th, 1986, Bob was found guilty of all charges. However, his defense team appealed his conviction and ultimately they won. His defense claimed that the prosecution couldn't prove whether or not Bob had raped Savannah when she was alive or not which is very contradicting because he had admitted in his initial police confession that he had gone back and raped Savannah. The defense found a loophole in all of this and basically argued back against the rape charge. And again, I don't know how they pulled that one off, but they did. And so instead of going through a whole new trial, Bob ended up making a deal with the prosecution and he accepted a deal of 25 years to life in prison and pled guilty to first degree murder. And the reason he took that deal was so that he would not have to face the death penalty if they had gone back into trial again. Now, I do want to mention that Bob Sellers was not the bedroom basher. That was actually a man named Gerald Parker who was convicted in 1996. So Bob Sellers was not the bedroom basher. Now, when it was revealed publicly who Savannah's murderer was, the town 
was absolutely shocked. Everyone was shocked and it was even more upsetting because Savannah had originally moved into the Woodbridge apartments for the reason of security. She chose that complex because she wanted to feel safe and she liked the fact that Woodbridge had 24-hour on-site security. So that is why she chose that complex. So the fact that the reason that she chose it ended up being the reason that got her killed is just incredibly tragic. And it's even more scary to think about the fact that this case could have remained cold. It could have gone unsolved had it not been looked at again, because you got to imagine when those prints came back and Bob was told that he was not a match to the prints, that has to have been like a very confusing moment for him. But to think that had it not been looked at again, he would have just continued to walk free is just a really scary thing to think about. And so luckily, Bob was caught and Savannah did end up getting justice in the end. So that, you guys, is the case of Savannah Anderson. And I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. It, again, is a frustrating one that it took so long to get solved. However, the fact that it was even solved at all is amazing. And the fact that it was looked at again, and it just goes to show the advancements in technology and what a fresh set of eyes can do to a case. I think it just has a lot of lessons in this case. So I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. The way you miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday you're not going to want to miss it i'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys and until then stay safe bye guys